I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Mariana DeMarco Torgovnik. Her new book is Crossing Back, Books, Family, and Memory Without Pain. Mariana experienced the rupture of two of her life's most intimate relations when her mother and brother died in close proximity. Mourning rocked her life, but it also led to the solace and insight offered by classic books and the practice of meditation. She entered a spiritual and psychological state of transcendental homelessness, the feeling of being truly at home nowhere, of being spiritually adrift. Her resulting journey into the past imagines a viable future and raises questions acute for Italian-Americans, but pertinent to everyone, about the nature of memory and the meanings of home at a time like ours, marked by cultural disruption and wartime. She shares with us a wide-ranging memoir about growing older and learning to ride the waves of change. Mariana is an award-winning author and currently directs the Duke in New York Arts and Media Program. Welcome to the show, Mariana. Thank you for having me, Kathy. What I would like to do is kind of pick up on actually the last sentence I said in the intro. Um, The book, a a wide-ranging memoir about growing older and learning to ride the waves of change. All of us are growing older, but many (laughs) of us do not ride the waves of change well. So let's start with that. Uh, Well, okay. Yeah. I think it's hard to to ride the waves of change well. Um, I think all of us have had to do that more than usual the last two and a half years. And uh, almost everyone I talk to is just viewing life decisions and and, and thinking about how that goes. Uh, For me, uh, I mean, the confrontation with death, I think, forces um, an acknowledgement of change and and, and, um, um, the differences that, that, that are going to be inevitable in, in life going forward. Uh, I had written a memoir, which seems a little hubristic now in retrospect. I had written a memoir in my 30s, and so this was coming back to something uh, when I was significantly older. Um, and it was just, I, I guess the first memoir was basically about my birth family and my my journey into an adulthood. I, I had come from a, a working-class background in Brooklyn, and I had ended up a professor at the extremely uh, Tony Institution of Williams College in the Berkshires, um, and then at the less Tony but also prestigious University of, of Duke University in the South. And it was it was it was hard to kind of reconcile my origins uh, with where I had ended up. And, and the first book, which is called uh, Crossing Ocean Parkway, uh, a metaphor that will mean something to people who grew up in Brooklyn and maybe be a little harder for people who did not. So that, that was, that was one kind of change. Um, then the second memoir was really about the end of my birth family and, and what that means. Uh, people tell you things like, well, that means you're next in line. Well, you know, that's an interesting thing to be next in line. And you have to think about what that means in terms of your family configuration and, um, who you are and what you've become and, and, and what you plan to become. And, and all of that, I think, is writing uh, the waves of change. Well, I, I mean, you've done it so, to me, you've done it so, you are not done, you are doing it, and you're doing it so well. But you just said something, you know, when someone dies, 
your birth family, significant people in your life, you're forced to put you're in a different situation and forced to face new experiences. But I think sometimes and I, you talk about that in the book is that people don't do that. They push it aside. They don't talk. They they are some even in some cultures. You know, a parent or a sibling in your case, and then also your son. Um, when they die, they don't want to talk about it, and it, it they don't do any. Yeah. They don't. Yeah, and and that's the real issue, um, not being able to express yourself and to uh, deal with with the loss. We're talking about loss and grief, which you did, but over a period of time. Right, right. I, I, the the psycho, a psychological mechanism, which I think is is prevalent in lots of cultures, including my own, which is Italian American, uh, is called denial, where you <laughs> you cope by not thinking about something. Um, I'm also a New Yorker, and uh, I, I noticed that your broadcast comes from New York, and New Yorkers are good at denial. Uh, it goes with Italian-American culture. It goes with Chinese-American culture. Uh, it goes with Southern culture. Um, and if you don't think about the things that are grieving you, it is a way of, of, of coping. Uh, it, it, it gets you through. Uh, but then I guess I, I, I'd say there's, there's a kind of trapdoor under you, and that trapdoor is going to open at some point and drop you through. Um, well, one of the things I talk about in, in, in the memoir is how my grief about my mother's death was difficult for me because it was a timely death. She was in her early 90s. Uh, my brother's death was not timely. He was in his early 60s and had pancreatic cancer. So that was a different kind of, of mourning experience. But one of the things that made it difficult, well, two things made it difficult for me. One was my sense that I was not entitled to grief. And that's a strange concept. What, what does it mean to be entitled to grief? But I, I, I found myself very realistic, very reluctant to grieve too much. It just, it just seemed wrong. It seemed inappropriate. The other thing that was coloring it for me was that I had lost a child much earlier. Uh, I have two, I have two adult daughters now. Um, and I had never really faced the loss of that, that first child. And so there was an element of denial, not just about the most experienced the most recent experiences of mourning, but the longer-term experiences of mourning. And part of it was personality, um, part of it was cultural, and part of it was intellectual. I had written about World War II, which, goodness knows, is a, is a time when enormous numbers of people ex- experienced enormous loss. As I was finishing the book, we were at the beginning of the, the COVID pandemic, you know, it was another time of, of major loss. Uh, so many people have died of, of COVID in America. There seems to be a lot of denial of that. People, you know, one way of getting through it is not to think about it. Um, and so I think that's, that's, that's an impediment, um, which, which it's an impediment. It's sometimes necessary. It's sometimes necessary, but it's something that you eventually have to work your way through. So let's talk. I'm going to interrupt you because let's talk about that. Because yes, I mean your your personal losses do relate to what's happening to us culturally. COVID. Let's take COVID because I, I find that too that people don't want to talk about, but it's don't want to talk about it necessarily. They want to get back to quote normal, whatever that is or was or could right. be. But uh, right. but but it looms there. Everything that I do, my, I started traveling again. Do, you know, getting out. Right. And right. but it seems to be hanging in the air. Things are different, and I can't quite describe it. Maybe you can describe it for us because it's there. Uh, it is definitely there. I, I am 
right now away from New York um, for a couple of days, really, just in, in the Berkshires where I my first job was at Williams College. And I'm, I'm noticing the same thing here that I was noticing in New York City. Uh, one is that um, mask use is way down. Um, and it's not always clear that it's useful anymore to wear a mask if not everyone is going to wear a mask. So everyone is kind of working that through. Um, I think many people have had it now. Uh, I haven't. Um, at least I, I, I'm going to say what people say. I don't know that I've had it. Possibly I did well, have it. And, and I would say some... If you haven't had it, you're a COVID virgin. That's the new word. <laughs> is that is that what people are saying? Yeah, uh, yes. I, I guess I, I, guess I, I understand that. But, I'm not. I'm not a virgin. I've had it. My partner, he hasn't had it. I don't know why he didn't get it, but I did anyway. Uh, but after being vaccinated, so it was very mild. But um, yeah, so and can, I think I think and I think that's also what's on people's minds. Most people are having mild cases. So then the question becomes, what do you give up in life in order to avoid avoid a mild case of COVID? And, you know, and the fact that Joe Biden had it and, and, and got well pretty quickly, the fact that Anthony Fauci had it and got well pretty quickly. I think people are just not willing to sacrifice very much now. Um, I often think, uh, because I've written about World War II, what would happen if this country were faced with something like World War II? I don't think it could actually cope. Um, but I do think there's a hunger to get back for experience. I, I think there's a tremendous hunger to be having a good time. Um, and part of it is understandable to me. I got together yesterday with some people I hadn't seen in a very, very long time. And, you know, we were talking about it, and I think most people are coming out of this pandemic with the sense that life has contracted, and we don't want life to have contracted. We want to get it all back at once. And it's pretty clear to me we can't really get it back all at once. It's going to take a little while. And and, and then there are all the people who, who lost people permanently uh, for whom life is never going to be the same again. So I think that all of that, uh, all of that is kind of going on in the, the, the fractious political climate, um, you know, the, the – the, the tension that surrounds masking in some in some locales, not being masked in other locales. It's it's a pretty messy situation right now. But I I, I think it's easing toward normal. Uh, my guess is, if I had to guess, and I haven't been exceptionally good at guessing who has, but my guess is that when the booster is available in the fall uh, for the Omicron uh, variant, um, everything will kind of relax a little bit. I know I'm going to be back in the classroom teaching a bunch of undergraduates, uh, I suspect that masking will be optional at that point, uh, and I'll feel better when I've had that booster as well. But, you know, you talk about denial, and you denied your experiences, and I mean, and, and not talking about the death of your newborn and, you know, the impact on your life. I think one of the issues right. is that we, as a culture or yes. community, are we have to accept that that we, this virus, this COVID is here to stay. And I don't mean to be pessimistic, but given what we've done in terms of climate change, there are going to be more of them. So things, you know, the, until we kind of accept that and not pretend that it's over now, you know, we're done with that. Um, I, I think we have to really kind of hone in on the fact that, hey, it's not over, it's changed. And we have ways of coping. Uh, but we have to, I think we have to accept that or otherwise we're going to kind of do this all over again with the next crisis, whatever that's no, going to be. I think, I think you're totally right about that. Uh, one of the things that 
is a side effect and an inevitable side effect of climate change is that um, uh, viruses and, and bacteria and other things that were once confined to tropical climates are moving north pretty rapidly. I mean, that that's just demonstrably true. So that a lot of what used to be considered um, explorer's diseases or, you know, intrepid adventurer's diseases are going to be more quotidian in, in, in our lives. And I agree that unless we have a better way of anticipating that and coping with that, um, it, it, it's going to get messy. In a sense, this goes back to my last book, which was called The War Complex, um, which talked about um, the, the peculiar psychological formations that took place in America after 9-11. And, and part of that was that, um, and, and if, if you think back, I mean, the, the number of people who were killed on 9-11, we had that many people dying per day for yeah. parts of the pandemic. And nobody actually made that comparison. But if you, if, if you, if you think about how, um, how uniformly the country reacted after 9-11 versus how um, divisively uh, the country has responded to the COVID epidemic, that, that in itself is kind of revealing. Um, and I, I kind of I, I agree with you that that we we really do need better better coping mechanisms, better ability to face the truth. But I, I guess the better better ability to kind of act act together rather than act um, uh, in opposition to each other. Yeah, acting together I think is key. And I also um, the difference maybe at least to me in my experiences between nine eleven. And COVID is 9-11 happened here in the United States. So since I've been traveling and I was in uh, Portugal with with people and somebody got COVID and they had to be treated. And I realized they, you know, we they, they went to the hospital, they got treated with the same kinds of things that we have. And at least in, in, um, in Europe and the United States and Australia, people have the access to you know, medical treatment, and it's all the same, that the whole world has experienced COVID. All and Right. Yeah, and I don't know if there's anything quite, whether that has happened before or that in the same way, because we're all, you know, we can, we're, it's, I mean, it's a, a unifying thing in a certain way, too, because of that. Every, every you know, every, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I, I think the world has experienced such things collectively before. I, I, um, I, I said I was in the Berkshires, and I went to a concert uh, the first day I was here, and they were playing um, a suite by a composer named Hulst, and it's called The Planets. And it was, um, it was completed in 1918, and it begins with um, a movement called Mars, which was all about war. And you could hear the, the pain and the destruction in that music and the audience, which is now a 21st century audience, not immediately in war. I mean, the, the audience gasped. It was, it was that powerful. So when you think of that in 1918, we're coming off of World War One, um, you, you get a sense and, and that, that, that was a, 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 an almost world war, worldwide trauma. And then of course that was followed by the Spanish flu, um, which was a major pandemic. Uh, to which the COVID pandemic was being compared quite a bit at the beginning. Again, a worldwide trauma, which eventually, as I understand it, didn't so much go away as just mutated to the point where it became one of the varieties of flu, which comes back periodically. Um, 
I would also say that World War II, that was an authentic worldwide trauma, um, which, the, which the world took at least a decade to come back from psychologically. And if you think about the kind of Cold War thinking um, that followed World War II, I think you could say it took a lot longer than a decade to come back to to come back from. So there's, um, I mean, it's an interesting concept, this, this idea of worldwide trauma, and obviously every culture deals with it differently. Um, American culture didn't have to face either of those two quite so much. I mean, World War One's impact was fairly light in the United States, except for um, uh, the, the kind of resurgent racism after troops came back. Uh, World War II's impact I, I know this sounds silly to say it was relatively light. It was it was it was four years long. Nothing that lasts four years is, yeah. is, is relatively light. Uh, but the the the, um, the death statistics were relatively light for the United States. And the United States comes out of World War II, the greatest power in the world. And I think that part of and, and saying that, I, I think that part of the malaise that people are feeling right now is uncertainty about where the U.S. is and, and, and how the U.S. is going to do over the next five years, the next two years, the next one year. Yeah. The one difference, though, that, I mean, World War One and World War Two were not fought in our country. We weren't on the battlefield here, even That's though... That's actually true. Totally. Yeah. Totally. So, totally. Know, just in terms of, yeah, it's not... we. Well, that said, yeah, even though, yes, it was a world war. Yeah, I think the uncertainty... Uh, Americans don't like uncertainty. We like an answer to everything, a solution. That's what isn't that? That's Western culture. We've got a problem. Let's solve it, and it's over. It's right? Quite, yeah, and that doesn't seem to be the case here. But also, I was in terms of your ability to resolve your own grief uh, and doing it also through this memoir. You talk about because it's very popular yoga and meditation. Um, and yeah, so how, I mean that, and also the academics and and relating it to the books that you read, et cetera. So, but for like the, just all of us, we're not professors and we're not academics. And, and, and so how can we relate that to our own feel, you know, feelings of malaise, loss, grief, yoga, meditation, how did that work for you? Uh, yeah, I, I think I, if, I think for people who are not especially attuned to reading and, and, and don't go to books for immediate comfort, I, I think I would start with, with yoga and meditation. Now, yoga is very popular in America, uh, but mostly in America, it's a, a physical activity, a form of exercise. And uh, I, I began doing yoga essentially as a form of exercise, as, as a way of maintaining flexibility, uh, you know, light caloric uh, workout. Uh, a lot of yoga traditions in America, you know, opt for a heavy caloric workout. They're almost like an aerobics workout. And that's never the kind of yoga that has spoken to me. But I was pretty much a physical yogi. And I mean, it's kind of it's comedic for, to think of myself as a physical yogi. I have short arms. I have short legs. Um, so I'm not, I'm not the ideal physical type. I, and I often thought of myself as the reluctant yogi, although I did yoga every day. Uh, when my mother died, I found myself um, intensifying the meditation part of yoga. Um, and I was in a, um, I, I, uh, the yoga school that I belong to is called Ishta Yoga. It, it's, it's New York, and, but also worldwide. And there's another school of yoga called Integral Yoga, which again is there is a New York base, but but worldwide. 
And both of these traditions um, have you get into meditation really soon. They don't care if you are a physically perfect specimen. And that's really important because some traditions of yoga say you cannot meditate until you've been doing yoga for a year or two. Both of these traditions say, oh, yeah, you can. You can. And even if you start meditating just a couple of minutes a day um, and then work it up to, say, 15 minutes a day, you just find your mind um, in a different place. Um, instead of being all focused on your own problems, being, you know, kind of looking, oh, this is wrong, oh, this is terrible, how could this have happened to me? You have a, a, a broader perspective, a, a, a more cosmic perspective, a more universal perspective, and it just, it just slows your mind down, slows your breath down, and just puts you in this place where you can have a longer point of view. And in your longer point of view, it's not that your problems don't exist, it's not that your grief doesn't exist, but it's in proportion, and, and, and you, you're no longer focusing on it. Uh, the term that is sometimes used is the witnessing mind. Uh, in other words, rather than just experiencing it in an unmediated way, you're looking at it as though it's not really happening to you. So you're in it, and you're also out of it. Now, interestingly, um, one of the things that I found was that reading has some of the same properties, and especially reading a set of classic books or uh, whatever set of um, poems, epics, novels, whatever whatever the medium happens to be, uh, whatever set of classic texts you immerse yourself in, it's got some of the same ability to take you out of yourself, to make you aware that you are not the only one who has ever experienced these kinds of emotions, and it's it's both a it's both a way of confronting one's emotions, but also distancing oneself. Um, the other thing which I I thought was kind of interesting, uh, I started reading classic books, and I thought, oh, yeah, oh gosh, I'm so original. I'm reading classic books. Uh, oh. And then I realized so many people who are at all intellectual or readers do that when they're in mourning. They go back and they read the classic books. I started with Homer. Um, I went to Aeschylus. I went to Dante. I, I had read these people before, uh, but I was reading them differently um, in a state of mourning. And then I discovered that lots of people do that. And uh, as in meditation, there's a kind of sequence involved. There's a kind of regularity involved. Uh, there's a kind of progression involved. And all of that, I think, is, is helpful in arriving at the, the condition that I call memory without pain in this book. Yeah, I, I think that's interesting because you do you bring your you take yourself your emotional self to the book or even a film and you know something that you've read or seen in your twenties is a very different experience there when you right. do it again in your forties or fifties or sixties because of your right. yeah and it does you're right. absolutely right yeah um, and, right. and I, I think film I, it's interesting yeah, that you mentioned film because I think yeah. film works that way too exactly. We only have a few minutes left, um, so I want to make sure that everybody knows uh, where we can purchase the book, obviously, more, inf more information about you, um, your, uh, websites we can go to, so give us some, um, some places, that we, some websites that we can go to for more information about okay. the book and about okay, you great. and about what you're doing. Okay. Uh, the book is, is, is easily available on Amazon. And you can find it under Crossing Back. Uh, there are a couple of things that are called Crossing Back, but if you look for it, Crossing Back, Torgovnik, T-O-R, 
G-O-V, N-I-C-K, it will come up. Uh, My website is uh, Mariana Torgovnik, and because both of those can be hard for people, they're perhaps, the the spelling is perhaps best located on Amazon first. I also teach at Duke University, and I am in the English department, so I can be found there, and my personal website gives more information about myself. Uh, I also have a Twitter feed, and that is Mariana, M-A-R-I-A-N-N-A, underscore T-O-R, the first three letters of my name. So, you know, I love hearing from people. If anyone wants to be in touch, that would be absolutely great. Um, And uh, I love talking to people, so I'm happy to talk. Yeah, and one of the things that we didn't talk about on the show, which is another reason to to read the book, is your Duke experience, because that really stands out. So um, that is something for readers to look forward to. Yeah, but it's been yeah. great talking anyone to you. Who's interested, yeah. Anyone who's interested in the way that culture plays out in universities will love this. It's like yeah. it's like the television series The Chair in real life. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it is. You're absolutely right. Well, anyway, great talking to you today. Thanks so much for being on the thanks show. For, thanks and for having me. It was a pleasure. Mariana DeMarco Torgovnik, and the book is Crossing Back, Books, Family, and Memory Without Pain, and then you can also read her previous book as well, right? Gotcha. Good. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 